Today, we're going to continue our discussion on Walter Scheidel's book, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. It was published in 2017, and probably the one of the best books that I've read, maybe you guys differ but or disagree, but one of the best books that you can read in order to really widen your perspective on what inequality is and what it's looked like for ever since we have uh, you know records available and it's interesting because in the book he discusses the fact that you know t this it couldn't even he couldn't even have written it you know 10 15 years ago because the research has progressed to such a point that we are almost just as close to a lot of these cultures and as the people that were actually living them. You know, we've got enough data that we can go back and we can, you know, reconstruct to at least a general degree um, and to the satisfaction of anybody who is interested in actually learning, you know, using whatever is available. Uh, we can re reconstruct the, you know, the, the hierarchies, how people were um, treated and how elites gained their power and what they did with their power. And so, you know, when you look around it today, you know, inequality is still, you know, it's just a fundamental characteristic, a fundamental fact of human existence that pretty much kind of determines, you know, our lives to a large degree, which is why it's such a hot button issue and has been a hot button issue that has triggered revolutions. And today, you know, it continues to trigger people's sense of injustice and unfairness uh, due to the fact that some people are born in positions where they can, um, you know, they, they're born into success and they just, for some, whatever reason, they can't even fail out of it. They just keep failing upwards and upwards and upwards. And, you know, other people are born into, you know, a, a poverty and they work as hard as they can and they will never, ever um, be able to, to reach such levels. And, you know, it's, it could be one person, you know, you could use do an experiment if you had that kind of power and just take one person, put them, you know, put them, clone them and put one into a, you know, great riches, a family of riches and the other into a family of poverty and watch what happens. It's, it's obvious. It's patently obvious that inequality exists and that there is uh, something very highly problematic about it. But the underlying problem is, is that we don't know what to do about it. And if you're serious about the problem, then, you know, getting t to the, uh, the really underlying factors and understanding, you know, how long it's been around, what has been done before, what can be done, um, all of these things are important for any student, any serious student of, of history. Mm -hmm. Well, w when we covered the first chapter in a previous show, I think one of the main points from there was the different types of inequality throughout history because like the type of inequality that we are familiar with is a relatively recent phenomenon pretty much from the advent of agriculture and before then in the paleolithic era the more tribal cultures there was inequality but it took a different form it wasn't really the the vast economic inequalities that we see it was more status based there were economic inequalities in certain situations like we gave the example of tribes that lived on a basically next to a rare resource so it might be a a prime river 
fishing location or something. So they'd basically get a, essentially a monopoly on that resource. And that resulted in a more stratified hierarchical form of inequality within those tribes. But on the whole, things were pretty much, um, well, more, more equal than any society after the advent of agriculture. And then once we get agriculture, that produces the, the possibility for great inequality because now you have the possibility for surplus production. So once you have surplus production, it's a matter of who's going to control that and how are they going to control it. And for our entire history since then, it has been those... Uh, basically, it's been the people who can... The p people can control that and have it for themselves if they have the the power of uh, of violence essentially to control it and to to um, prevent any possible people from taking that so well what you needed to do is you needed to protect that surplus with essentially a private military or uh, a police force or whatever so there's for for the history of inequality and for the history of modern economics in the sense of like the last 10 years there's been this um, this relationship this almost intertwined relationship between wealth and um, possessing power and that is like the the element of coercion and and the threat of violence and the use of violence so there's been this link between violence and um, and wealth and so that like I said, allowed for a new form of inequality, like a, 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 a an inequality of a degree that wasn't even possible beforehand, because now you have surplus surplus production. You've got the potential to create and to hold on to a lot more than will just basically let you live a subsistence lifestyle. But even then, after that, there are still variations in the types of inequality that we've seen since then. So this second chapter that we're looking at looks at the Roman and the various Chinese empires around the same time periods. So, um, well, around 2,000 years ago and then, you know, before or after. And Scheidel points out the, the mostly the similarities between those two systems, but also the differences. One of the things that stood out to me before getting into a lot of the details is that this was a form of inequality that um, that that doesn't have well it has some things in common again with let's say modern western societies and even eastern societies like china but there's a difference um, back then because these were still pre-industrial societies and so one of the points well i want to get into just a little bit of the background to understand the types of inequality that scheidel is talking about he gets into like Gini coefficients and things like that. So for those unfamiliar with that, Gini is a G-I-N-I. It's basically a, a measure of the like a society's resources and then how those are distributed. So if everyone has exactly the same amount, that would be a Gini distribution of like zero. But if one person has all the wealth essentially and everyone else is just at subsistence, that would be like a one or a I, th I think that's the way it is. I'm not, or it, I don't know if it. I can't remember if one is one person has everything and everyone else will basically die. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so basically, you can't. G in practice, you'll never get a Gini coefficient of one because most societies will, um, like the majority of people, will be at a at a subsistence level because they're essential for 
for, well, you need those people at the bottom in order to hold up the people at the top. If everyone else dies and you're the only person with all the wealth, you're going to die too, essentially. So there's always, there's, always, um, there's always some wealth at the bottom, even if it's just as, at a subsistence level. But there's another limiting factor on the, the Gini coefficient, and this is, um, he gets into it in, in the appendix, and what it basically means is that if you take a society, um, it depends on how much, or like a nation or whatever, it, it depends on how much money and production that economy that, yeah, that economy produces. Because if you have, let's say, well, let's just take a hypothetical example of like this fictional country with 100 people. So the GDP might be $100. Um, and that, and so a perfectly distributed equal system, each person, each person gets or has $1, right? So everyone has one. Now, if you, if this, if the GDP is 101, then you have you can have 99 people with $1 and then one person with $2. So that person has twice as much wealth as everyone else, but the it's it's not a very big difference. The Gini coefficient is going to be really low because there's just not enough surplus to make a a, a big um, difference between the lowest and the top. So when you have let's say like a GDP of a million for these 100 people, and each person, 99 people are still making, still only have $1, and then one other person has essentially, you know, just shy of a million dollars. That's a huge disparity and a very high, um, a very high inequality measure, Gini coefficient. So in a, basically what that shows is that the, the Gini coefficient is limited by the, the total wealth or production within any individual country. So the point he makes about these uh, these empires, the Roman and the Chinese, was that because they were pre-industrial, like their GDP, their well equivalent GDP, you know, trying to figure it out in terms of which we think about modern GDPs, wasn't very high. I think at one point he says that in the Roman Empire it was something like just maybe maybe two times um, like the subsistence level, and modern economies go several orders of magnitude higher than that above subsistence. So there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of money relatively to go around. But the point he makes about about that is that in the Roman Republic, um, I'll just read a quote where he's talking about just the estimate he that he and others have come up with for the um, the the Gini of the the Roman Republic or may, and may, maybe up to the time of the empire too. But he basically says that during these periods, there were like a hundred and what was it? Um, well, I'll, we've given the number. He's giving the number of households, and basically that about one one point five percent of all of all households captured between a sixth and close to a third of the total output, and this equated to about um, a Gini in the low zero point fours. And a lot of modern societies, like Western societies, are in the mid 0.4s or even up to like low 0.5s. So it looks a, bit, a little bit low and comparable to modern uh, inequality. But he points out that this value is actually much higher than it might seem. Because average per capita GDP amounted to only about twice minimum subsistence net of tax and investment, the projected level of Roman income inequality 
was not far below the maximum that was actually feasible at that level of economic development, a feature, a feature shared by many other pre-modern societies. Measured against the share of GDP that was available for extraction from primary producers, Roman inequality was therefore extremely severe. At most, a tenth of the population beyond the wealth elite would have been able to enjoy incomes well above bare subsistence minimum, or bare subsistence levels. So essentially, what you had in the in the Roman Republic and getting it, and even more so, I guess, in the Empire in the in the hundreds of years after the fall of the Republic, was an extremely unequal system where the elite class had essentially everything. Um, like the top twelve percent had all the wealth. Everyone else was living bare subsistence. So this would be like pretty much below poverty levels in a lot of developed countries. <clears throat> and um, but so their Gini, like that was the maximum Gini they could possibly have in order to survive. If they were making modern GDPs, their Gini might have gone up to 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, because you, you can, um, bigger, richer, societies have a higher capacity for inequality. Um, so that's something to just keep in mind in general for when thinking, when reading articles about inequality and Gini coefficients, is that there are factors that you have to take into account to provide the context for what that number actually means. Because you can have a what seems to be a low Gini compared to other countries, but that that might mean that um, in, uh, in essence, in practice, that that society might be vastly more more unequal than uh, a country with a higher um, a higher Gini coefficient. Um, it depends on it, it really depends on how you look at it. So uh, a developing country with a Gini of 0.4 that might mean that pretty much everyone is in total poverty and a tiny percent of the population has everything. Whereas in a, a richer country, you can have the majority of the population at several times, or you know, maybe not several times, but significantly above the the poverty level and above subsistence levels, and then uh, like an even larger group that has even more of the or uh, an even more absolute number of of the of the wealth or amount of the wealth. So there there are all these different factors that you have to look at when thinking about inequality. You know, whether it's absolute or relative, and what the what the, the 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 GDP is of these countries, like per capita, all of these things, you have to be taken into account to understand it. So when you're looking at the the Roman and the Chinese empires of these times, um, you really get the picture that um, <clears throat> well, things were bad. It's like you think inequality is bad now <laughs> in the in a, an absolute like um, monarch monarchical uh, dictatorship. Things were. Uh, a lot more extreme, and in this chapter he gives the he gives an explanation of how this happened, how this progressed, and again, part of it was has to do with you have these um, these surpluses of production, you have essentially extra food, you have grain, who controls that, and then um, well, who's going to control that? It's the person with the most power. Eventually, you get to this system like in China where the warring kingdoms uh, were united. And now you have this absolute, um, essentially this absolute government that has control over everything, and that those resources are then controlled by the might of the military. Um, and I don't know, do we want to get into details about uh, well, I, how that happened? I just wanted to jump in there because um, what's interesting about this chapter 
that, like you said, focuses on um, the inequality within empires, is that most often, uh, if there was any attempt to um, create uh, greater equalization and, uh, and less income inequality, it most often took the form of uh, elitist infighting. In other words, uh, occasionally you had a revolt among the, uh, the, the peasant class here and there, especially in the, in the Chinese empire. Um, and in the Roman empire, you, you did have um, a kind of uh, you know, working class um, struggle, if you want to call it that, sort of uh, supporting those, uh, those senators and those individuals who would, you know, like the Gracchi brothers, uh, who, who would push forward with agrarian bills. Uh, but most often, the, the biggest leveling we saw of any kind wasn't really a leveling at all. It was, it was more, um, you know, one, one group of uh, uh, semi-militarized political class families, aristocrats, who were fighting and usurping the the other uh, the other factions, and and they would take turns over a period of hundreds of years, um, you know, toppling one another. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the you know, taking a step back from it, the impression I got was that um, the 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 working class or the or the slaves or the peasantry. Uh, were quite often so disenfranchised, so um, so afar from wielding any kind of uh, economic or political power that they they didn't even have the opportunity or the means uh, or a hint of it to um, uh, put forward any kind of viable way of of maintaining a a more equal distribution mm-hmm. of wealth. Uh, so this was. Um, this is a, a an interesting part of it to me, um, because you know what we learn uh, from Shadell's book, at least in in this part of it, is that there 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 was no opportunity for many individuals to to create a uh, any kind of lasting and um, and uh, viable distribution of wealth, as I just said. It it was just it was just a kind of uh, a permanent underclass of disenfranchised individuals who are existing as farmers or or merchants or craftsmen, really much at the at the whims of whoever was then in power. Um, and also uh, to put a point on it, um, you know, we like you said, ours and these are these are empires we're talking about. So. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the power that was held by the governments at the time was at the force of a military or a police state uh so to say who who had administrative control over the courts and who were able to tax and uh individuals and confiscate their land or redistribute it as they saw fit um and it it could have only been accomplished uh, with the power of of brute strength and force, so you know as we as we kind of look at contemporary times a little bit, um, there are some differences, but certainly some parallels I think on a on a global scale of you know what an empire uh, looks like and how it behaves and uh, and what it does and when you compare these these empires to what 
you know, some might consider the Western Empire, um, and you look at the same dynamics involved, it, it, there's not much has changed in thousands of years. The same dynamics seem to be at play. Uh, there's this, you know, the vassal states and 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 uh, and countries that um, that have been kind of forcibly uh, manipulated and coerced to do the bidding of these uh, militarized, um, big bully, you know, countries. I'd say maybe one thing I just want to riff on that point really quick was the, um, is the idea that, yeah, like nothing really has changed in that, in that way, but it's like people's perspective on it has changed. And I mean, economically, technologically, a lot has changed. Sure. But people expect the state or the government, um, you know, to, to do something good for the people. You know, there's something good about government. Government can come in and legalize things and prohibit this, prohibit that, you know, it can, you know, protect you or, you know, protect you from the evildoers or whatever. There's something about government that is, um, that can be good. And that's a concept that's pretty relatively new i mean it probably dates back to like the you know the revolutions the revolutionaries the you know john locke and thomas hume and all those philosophers and kind of a more modern um, way of viewing the individual and the social contract and that we are all in this together and that there are some values that are higher than us or the government and that there is something objectively and absolutely true about justice and it doesn't depend on the whims of those in power so there's some sort of shared sentiment there, but deep down, I mean, like you're saying, I think that everything is pretty much functions, uh, especially behind the scenes, and then it's just kind of sugar-coated for mass consumption in the same way. I just want to read um, what Walter Scheidel had to write about that. Um, he writes that, um, from a contemporary perspective, states are considered to be failing if they are unable to supply public goods to their members. Corruption, lack of security, breakdown of public services and infrastructure, and loss of legitimacy serve as markers of state failure. Yet this definition holds states to standards that need not have applied in the more distant past. The notion that states are supposed to provide varied public goods beyond basic security and that failure or collapse can be inferred from their inability to meet this expectation seems anachronistic for most of history. For the uh, purposes of this global survey, we are better served by a bare-bones characterization of essential state functions. Inasmuch as pre-modern polities focused in the first instance on checking internal and external challengers, protecting the key allies and associates of rulers, and extracting the revenues required to perform these tasks and enrich the power elite, state failure is best understood as the loss of the capacity to accomplish these basic objectives. So it all revolves around um, a small power elite, a small group that has shared goals, shared interests, which is to enrich themselves, to gain power, to thwart external enemies. And there's, if you do what you have to do to keep the, the plebes happy or whatever, to keep, you know, if you, 
if there's if you're not strong enough that you can't just brutally um thwart them and enslave them like they did in Barbados when they would just work people to death and slave uh, and chain gangs, then, you know, you've got bread and circuses or whatever to keep people at least pacified. And the entire way you're raking in billions and billions and billions and you're owning, you're buying up land and buying up land and you're just doing whatever you can to make sure that you and and your own are set up, um, you know, as far into the future as possible. But the problem is, is that, you know, then you're in that position and you have a big target on your back so you're it's constantly live by the sword and die by the sword as he shows throughout the book but the interesting thing is that no matter how many times an elite family loses all of they all that they have to another elite family the general that general state continues to grow and it continues to become more powerful and continues to increase the inequality levels and the Gini coefficient there to um, the breaking point. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter who's the, you know, the meet the old boss, same as the new or new boss, same as the old mm-hmm. boss, the same, um, the same thing continues to happen. And on a deep level, I think that one reason why people are so anxious about levels of high inequality is that when it gets really bad, you know, it's, kind of like a harbinger of doom, you know, the great, you know, what is the name of the book? The great level, great leveler violence. Um, he talks about the four horsemen, uh, you know, mass mobilization, warfare, revolution, state failure, and lethal pandemics and state failure can come about because of massive climate disruptions and all that kind of stuff. It's usually when there's a lot and lot of inequality, then for some, whatever reason, it's like something clicks and then boom, everything starts crashing down to the ground for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you gave, um, well, one example of one of the things you're talking about, oh, the elite infighting, is he gives an example from China where the system had basically evolved to the point where you had what were, what were essentially local leaders that, um, that had a vast amount of power over their constituency, essentially. And they were, at one point, essentially warlords, because they had enough power that they could um, they could do what, what what they wanted with what was going on in their region, and if one of those families or rulers got weak, then it wasn't just other elite families that were smelling that and coming in for a fresh kill because because uh, they smelled the weakness of this one leader. the The subjects of that person would even turn against the the leader. So once the mm-hmm. once the leader showed signs of weakness and losing power, they might ally with another strong man from another region to take him out and right. get a new warlord put in place. Mm-hmm. So the the system was self-reinforcing on multiple levels. It's like no one was trying to change it, essentially. One of the points he does make is that there were several emperors um, periodically throughout, um, especially he talks about the ones in the Chinese emperor, empires, that would try to introduce policies to to level things out a bit through wealth or usually land redistribution so um or or limits on the amount of land people could own because the 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 dynamic was that once someone got rich enough to own a chunk of land then they had the the wealth to invest in other uh, other pieces of land and they basically acquired these mini fiefdoms these mini kingdoms for themselves where they owned all the land and then essentially all the people on that land. So the people, um, the people underneath them essentially became, became serfs, slaves to a degree where they were 
basically owned by that person and um, had all of their production exp um, expropriated for the purpose of enriching that family or that, uh, you know, that governor. And so you, you get this, so you, you, you had this system of these, um, these kind of chieftains of these various regions that had control over vast amounts of land and vast amounts of people, and that's all tax revenue that can come from, from those sources. We'll get into that a bit. But, um, oh, where was going to go with that? The, so you have, you have these different, yeah, these different families, these different rich people with, with a whole bunch of land. That, that's what the certain emperors were trying to fix because you have, you know, basically one family with all of this land and making all of this money and getting all of this power. They tried to cut into that a bit by limiting the amount of land that people could have. But they immediately ran up to uh, up against problems, and it never lasted. Essentially, it was an impossible policy, because first of all, you're you're you you're trying to put put into practice a policy that is against uh, that goes against the interests of the class with the most money and power. So, and the only ability to actually follow through with these policies, right? <laughs> so you you it, it would be it is essentially like. In a sense, it's it's the same problem that you get with revolutions of various sorts, where you have the weakest people trying to overthrow the strongest people with the most weapons and the most power. Um, it's a very difficult proposition to put forward and to to make it a success. So you had for, you had various or these elites had various means of getting around this. First of which was just basic corruption. They would just um, forge certain documents, put land titles in other people's names, um, change the status, uh, like the, the legal status of one piece of land in order to change the tax rate, continue collecting the old tax rate, and... Um, fix the census. Fix the census. A any number of things that they could do, plus they had lobbies, because they were uh, essentially a special interest group that had influence in court. Um, in, in the... Basically, all of the whisperers in the in the imperial court who who could get their um, who could not only make their wishes known but then then put them into practice. So, because this corruption was essentially systemic throughout the whole system, um, it was it, it, what you essentially had. If you had a good emperor, was one emperor against everyone, like the the entire elite class, who would be against any kind of policy to essentially have their stuff taken away from them. Mm -hmm. So that's one level of the complexity. The other that you guys mentioned was the just the amount of infighting that went on. The because it was a constant it's not like the it's not like the the rich, the the elite class of these times had it easy. Sure they had they had a lot um they had vast amounts of wealth and um could live extravagant lives to some degree, but always with the threat of someone stabbing them in the back, which happened repeatedly. Um, there was no no security, um, no no assured long term security to you know, one's status in life and um, and the 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 longevity of their wealth and their their property, um, not guaranteed. But adding another level of complexity on that, like that you were saying, Corey, despite all of this infighting, which was essentially um, coerced 
um, redistribution of wealth. Well, this person is out of favor now. We're going to take his money um, and either give it to someone else or give it to the state, give it to the emperor and, uh, and redistribute, redistribute it like that. Um, the... Well, I think yeah, that's the. I think that's all I wanted to say about that one. So I, I just wanted to, uh, while you were saying all that, um, I was thinking I wanted to transpose a little bit of of what uh, we had read in this chapter to current events because, um, I, again, I you know it's it's like it, it's very difficult to read this without also having certain developments in in uh, in politics and in the way that mm -hmm. the U.S. functions in particular. Uh, and and without seeing these parallels that are incredible to me, um, because like I said earlier, I mean it it, it it's as though uh, there is a psychological uh, dynamic uh, among the elite class for this insatiable uh, thirst for uh, not only you know having uh, a certain amount of of wealth and power, but accruing more, which 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 in their minds I suppose. Uh, equaled maintaining uh, their power, uh, or at least it, it, it's, it's kind of difficult to describe in, in some sense. But, um, but the point is, I think, that once they've gotten onto this track of, of tasting a certain amount of control and accruing a certain amount of wealth and, and conspiring uh, with others in their in their class to make alliances and uh find ways of of um of maintaining their wealth it it's like a it's like a kind of a you know a a destined um a self-imposed uh destined uh road to um to greed and to it, it's like it exists for no other reason than for their own self-gratification uh, so what I was thinking of um, was, uh, and I mentioned this on a previous show quite briefly, you know, this whole Hunter Biden uh, controversy with, um, you know, Joseph Biden's son becoming this this kind of, uh, you know, sitting on the board of, of one of these uh, companies in the Ukraine um, where he had no experience in, in, uh, in energy or in the particular field that they were, um, that he was put kind of on the board of and um and you know just a, a quick recap 2014 basically through the the color revolution that was um implemented uh in large part by the united states uh in an administration that that uh, joseph biden served as vice president of uh you know the ukraine becomes effectively this this kind of uh not a protectorate but but uh, this new newly formed vassal state of of the American Empire, and um, and so you know Biden in perpetuating his own power in his own mind through one of his sons puts him you know or, or kind of shunts him into this 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 position of power in a place that's it's so obvious he shouldn't be, um, and I. Th this is kind of largely a dynamic that that's described in the chapters because there was you know the Han Dynasty you had 
you had these uh, these warlords or, or householders or elitists who would you know have seven sons or ten sons and 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 put them in various positions of power and this was all an effort to perpetuate the the accrual of more power and and more wealth um, so uh, in that sense it, it was it's really instructive to see how the same dynamics are at play today uh, in in what might be described as you know capitalism's you know last stage in a given country where the the pathology of 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 wealth uh, reaches a tipping point of um, obviousness and exploitation and begins to become uh, so apparent to so many that it just it, it falls a part of its of its own accord. It becomes this kind of vacuous uh, hole that sucks up everything and 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 begs for a response from either other elites uh, who see an opportunity um, or from groups that you know are are tired of being exploited and and are become capable of responding in some way. Well, the I, I think that. I might have a, an even more cynical take on that. I think that, like Corey, you were talking, you read that quote in the, in the book and the, about the kind of modern, the modern views on what the state is and should be and what governments are and should be. I think this is just kind of taking down the mask and showing what the reality is, always has been, and is everywhere. That there there isn't anything special, in this regard at least, um, about... Um, Western democracies is that at, at root underneath the surface, they all operate on the same principles. You have um, the, the corruption just takes different and more sly forms you, because the, the corruption in other countries, I'd say, is even more obvious and over the top, um, especially in developing countries where where the 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 extraction rate is is even higher you know, reaching that top level of inequality in a, in a given country, like in a lot of, um, a lot of countries in Africa, for instance, where, where it's just, the, the, they, the, a lot of the, a lot of the countries in Africa basically have, um, inequality rates and types of inequality that are similar, like to the Roman empire. And when you, but when you look at, when you have these glimpses behind the veil, like behind the curtain, you see that the, the, the dynamics are the same everywhere. It's that political power is, um, is essentially a fast track to wealth and to expanding your wealth. That's the point he makes about the, the Roman and Chinese empires, is that um, office holding was a means of getting rich and holding power. That The, the two were inextricably intertwined. There was a, um, they were essentially systems of patronage, um, where, uh, which is like cronyism and keeping, keeping things in the in-group that like in modern Western societies, that would be um, like no bid contracts, um, giving giving contracts to your buddies, giving um, overcharging for certain things so you can skim off the extra money, and um, various lobbying efforts and favors under the table favors here and there that might look fine on paper, but they they result in a in an economic uh, advantage to the politician giving them. And then once you're out of political office, you just happen to be a multi billionaire or millionaire for and no one really knows how it happens it's just right. see it's just that's just the way it works and th that's what's been going on for all of these thousands of years where you have these um and, and it may be that um that in the in the states there's 
the or in modern not just in the in the states but in modern countries in general to a greater or lesser degree depending on the country the the class lines are more permeable so you will you will get politicians that kind of go from um you know from that build themselves from nothing to something great so i mean there's there's tons of stories about that of 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 politicians and uh people in in positions of power who didn't start in a in a kind of like an aristocratic family you get others that did like jfk um or or you know george bush um but you but you get plenty of people that make their way into the into the the ruling elite class and it was the same as the roman empire developed where at, at first the 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 ranks essentially were closed and you had a very small number of of um like senators and people of patrician rank but then as the years went on more, that that class grew and grew and you essentially it would be the equivalent of there were there were more and more millionaires and billionaires in the roman empire as things developed and the the wealth of the empire got greater and greater and as all those things inequality got greater and greater but um but the like the the class lines weren't so weren't so rigidly defined um and then in like in china again you had this this system that developed where even despite all of the infighting this is a point you already made cory that despite the the uncertainty and the risk and the the changes of fortunes between these competing families the system itself was stable so you always had the the controlling ruling families and they and as a collective they got progressively richer um throughout time even though the particulars and who who was on top at any given moment would change at any given time they might even like all be wiped out at some point to be replaced by a totally new group but the the system itself perpetuated and that's uh that's kind of a depressing thought when you when you think about it's it it's really like the snake devouring its own tail so no better depiction i think than than of that mm-hmm. but so that gets to the central thesis of the book is that the only way to really change things is that historically the only thing to have changed things to any degree have been these mass catastrophes where of just mass violence basically bringing everyone down to zero to restart um but one thing to get into i think is that when when reading these stories about how these things are set up it seems to me that there's always a, a kind of mixture between what i think many people would consider um a legitimate uh legitimate ways of making money and getting rich as opposed to like illegitimate ways and in all of the examples of of the establishment of powerful ruling elites it's always a combination of the two and but oftentimes the the illegitimate ways vastly outstrip the legitimate ways so in the um in the chinese empires basically um you you could have these rich merchant classes that would could essentially buy themselves into office and the an interesting thing i don't know what to think about it yet is that in both the in both china and rome merchants were seen as like lowly people like the the upper classes didn't want to saw merchants as basically um this um low class kind of beneath their contempt um merchants weren't seen uh, well they were because they did they did business and and services with the with the public mm-hmm. you know with the plebes with the with the kind of the refuse of society and so they were seen as kind of a yeah just a not really not really aristocratic material but you get the 
the po- you get to the point where there are some people that become rich enough to buy themselves into the into the ruling class. Once they've got that, they have they now have the means instead of hard work and even if even if they were um, if they were if they got their their wealth originally through shady means and you know screwing people over now they had even more opportunities to use um, even even more let's say criminal means of of getting more wealth right. so now once you're in the ruling class you have the ability to basically fleece the locals um, you know using all the means uh, and you know techniques we mentioned just a few minutes ago whether it's uh, you know changing the census records um, Fudging with the the tax the, the tax records and the the classifications of land and um, all of these ways of covering up the covering up the the kind of, the kind of theft of of money for oneself, which was an agreed upon practice. Like everyone knew, everyone else was doing it. Even if um, if you fell out of favor, it could be used against you to um, to have your you know your stuff expropriated. Um, you had not only did you have all this, you had. Um, you yourself now, as part of the ruling elite, w- weren't taxed. Like you were exempt from taxation, and the um, at a certain level of of um, of status, the emperor was. You ba- they, the courts essentially needed the emperor's permission to charge you with anything. So now you entered entered into a new um, a new justice bracket where the laws didn't apply to you. So you there's this comp- there's this this lawless environment that you enter into where you are empowered and incentivized to not only fleece the public, but get away with whatever crime you want, essentially. Again, always keeping in mind that if you, if you mess with the wrong people or, you know, anger the wrong people, you could, you could bear the brunt of that and lose everything. Um, but you had vastly more, um, opportunities for, Getting for 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 getting wealth in a um, in an underhanded and and kind of criminal way, and and one of the points he makes is that the 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 higher your status, the more you are able to um, to fleece essentially. And he gives examples in um, of just the the amount of money that each each um, each level could make. Where if you were a close minister of the of the emperor, you made just billions and billions and billions. Um, you know, some level just below that would be, you know, maybe a, an order of magnitude lower. And then it was, it was like the the higher you are, the more graft you got. Essentially, well, I've got a few uh, examples that I pulled from the book. Uh, Shadell writes: Provincial governors were paid up to one million sesterces a year for their good services, but continued to extract great wealth on the side. One governor entered the province of Syria as a pauper and left it rich, filthy rich, two years later. A century on, a governor of southern Spain unwisely bragged in his correspondence that he had extorted four million sesterces from his uh, provincials and had even sold some of them into slavery just to make a little bit of extra money. Much farther down the food chain, an imperial slave overseeing the imperial treasury in Gaul commanded the services of 16 underslaves, two of whom were in charge of his apparently extensive set of silverware. Yeah. He had this so slave himself had two underslaves. There was an even an even filthier underclass devoted to um, you know the petty tyranny of the slaves. I mean that was it sounds like that was the structure 
of society was just tyranny mm-hmm. and you just fleece whoever you can for whatever you can get and that's the that's the moral code is that you know the um might with might comes right you know mm-hmm. and it's and that's the way the the system of roman government was set up where if you got your pro consular consulship to basically rule one of the provinces it was accepted that you were going to fleece the locals mm-hmm. because now you could tax them you you basically determined how much they had and then um and then took as much as you could when the when the interest rate was like six percent in rome and some of the provinces it was like 48 percent and they'd basically go and just figure out how much they could take and and that was uh, that was in uh, agreed upon practice but again even in rome if you got if you got caught and someone um, someone didn't like you, they could bring you to court and potentially you could, you could suffer for it. So that happened all the time too. It was, it was a constant battle of how much I, how, how much can I can, how much can I take and how can I get away with it by not pissing off the wrong people? Mm-hmm. And so a constant jockeying for power and, but it didn't stop anyone from, from doing these things. It was because that's what, that was common practice. It was how much can I, can I just steal from the people I'm now going to control for a year or two or longer? And that's how the entire system was set up. And so it was just a, a system of complete, you know, vassalship over the, over the, the locals that had been conquered. And the, that's, what, uh, that's what warfare was for in the, in the Roman Republic. Um, well, one point before I get to the warfare aspect was that um, Scheidel points out that the, one, of the, one of the only reasons that these vast amounts of, or these vast levels of inequality were um, able to develop was that there were relatively stable periods of peace because the the roman the the roman republic itself even though it was constantly at war with with other nations and and regions the state itself was stable for like uh, several hundred years and that's what allowed these uh these levels of inequality to develop um the so the more stable your system is the more inequality is going to develop and that's that seems to be what is uh you know seems to be true today too so the one of the one of the other aspects of the war of warfare in the roman uh, republican empire was that when you basically you could go to war and when you went to war and you conquered another people then whatever whoever you conquered it was your right to then enslave whoever you conquered and steal all their stuff mm-hmm. and that was the that was the booty that was then um d- delivered to the troops as payment for for conquering this other people so it was it was basically okay well we're going to you see that those that group of people over there we're going to go attack them steal all their stuff and enslave them and then get rich off of it and that's how how some people made their money it was a totally legitimate way you know, within that class of getting rich just to through you know theft and theft warfare and and enslavement um and you know uh th- there's another another element to this which, which i find quite interesting especially uh with the roman empire um and that is that uh th- this elite class that was that that would hold these uh these consulships and who were senators and and they were called the optimates uh, this ruling class would uh, meet, they had this veneer or this pretense of being in a republic, a, a democracy. And, um, and basically, these guys would get up and speak before one another. And you had guys like Cato, uh, who would get up, and they, 
and they had such a, a gift, some of them, for rhetoric and for making the case for certain policies in defense of uh, exploiting the merchant class or, or not passing a certain bill that would alleviate the, uh, the suffering of, the, of the, the kind of peasantry or, or the lower classes. Um, that was their CNN. That was their New York Times and their Washington Post. Uh, they would get up in many cases and just flat out lie and, uh, and do it with such a plume, uh, do it with, with such a, a, a skill and a, um, a wit and a rhetoric uh, level that, um, that they would take people in. Uh, and they would, they would rouse the emotions of, of, certain, um, of certain people. And, and that's, how they would, uh, that's how they would win influence in many cases. So, like, you know, in present day, obviously, you, you have people with, uh, you know, Trump could not be Trump with, without his bombastic uh, and some would argue, you know, charismatic criticisms and, and, uh, and bombs that he drops on people. Um, that he has the, 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 the balls and the gumption to, to put out there. Um, you know, when, when Bill Clinton was a president... Uh, another guy who was very highly articulate and, and um, for all his major failings and his, and his corrupt nature, uh, he was able to um, talk the talk. Uh, so, so this was a, it's not clear that, that this was uh, even an element that, that had a great part to do in, uh, in the Chinese empire, although it, you know, it may very well have been. Um, getting the ear of the emperor and becoming his, you know, his uh, second or third or tenth in command probably uh, required some amount of uh, verbal uh, talent. Um, so there, there was, uh, you know, that was the media, that was uh, the newspapers and and the TV and and the the sound bites. It was it was these guys who made speeches. And, um, before their constituency and, and vied for, for influence and they could lie through their teeth and they can, uh, you know, they could, you know, in, in the case of, um, of, of guys like, um, Cicero, they can exalt themselves to the, to the status of father of, of Rome, uh, and, and have a certain number of people, uh, believe it for a, a period of time, for as long as he needed to, just to uh, win a certain amount of influence and and consolidate power for himself. So that's just a, another kind of uh, dimension to all this that that uh, that well, seems crucial. I want to read a quote about uh, the final dynasty that he talks about in China, the Manchu King. Not sure how to pronounce that. Um, he says, the final di dynasty, which had confiscated and reallocated vast Ming estates to the imperial clan and others, was beset by a wide array of tax corruption schemes. These were the, some of the ones I was mentioning. Officials concealed embezzlement by fabricating arrears, exaggerated the scale of natural disasters that required tax exemptions, falsely declared a barren status for their own land, Borrowed tax advantages, for advantages or tax advances from the rich, stole the money, and then applied the liabilities as arrears to commoners. Reclassified land, but collected taxes at the usual rate, pocketing the difference, and withheld or falsified receipts. Gentry or retired officials, 
often paid no tax at all, with active officials and clerks passing the burden on to commoners in exchange for a cut of the profit. Finally, land was registered under as many as hundreds of false names, which made it too cumbersome to track down small arrears. Corruption by high officials was a standard mechanism of wealth accumulation, the more so the higher the rank. According to one estimate, average incomes of officials amounted to a dozen times their official legal incomes in the form of salaries, rewards, and allowances, but well more than a hundred times for a governor general, and as much as 400,000 times in the case of Hei Shen, Grand Secretary of the King Court, in the second half of the 18th century. Executions and confiscations were were employed as equally timeless countermeasures. Present-day China demonstrates the remarkable resilience of such practices. As a member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, Zhu Yongkang was able to acquire 326 properties all over China worth about $1.76 billion, in addition to $6 billion deposited in hundreds of bank accounts that belonged to him and family members, and securities worth another $8.24 billion. When he was arrested in December 2014, domestic and, for- and foreign banknotes worth $300 million were found in his various residences alongside stashes of gold. Thanks to his exalted rank, his exploits dwarf those of his, rival- of his rivals. His total wealth would have put him in the 55th spot in the Forbes World's Billionaires ranking for 2015, even though they tried hard. Loser. An entire ton of neatly boxed up cash was discovered in one general's mansion and even a mid-level water supply official in a resort town popular with party leaders managed to accumulate real estate and cash worth more than $180 million. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of just graft that, that happens in, um, well, kind of everywhere. And this, it's a similar thing that the, like the Lebanese are protesting against uh, right now. Just this, it's a, a system um, that's been entrenched for hundreds of years of basically politi- political patronage and, uh, and corruption. Um, it's just the way things, it's just the way things work, um, unfortunately. And maybe one other example that he talks about, um, this is the case of Mamluk, Egypt from 1250 to 1571, um, in which the prince, this principle um, let's see, inasmuch as inequality could be contained within intact imperial polities, it was by means of violent recirculation of assets within the elite. So he says he's already mentioned this case of Mamluk Egypt, in which this principle played out in maybe its purest historical documented form. The sultan, his emirs, and their slave soldiers shared the proceeds of conquest. They formed an ethnically separate and spatially detached ruling class bent on extracting rents from the subordinate indigenous population, which was brutalized if revenue flows failed to meet expectations, similar to Rome. Incessant jockeying for power within this class determined individual incomes, and violent conflict frequently altered these allocations. Local property owners sought refuge in extortion rackets that had them cede responsibility for their assets to strongmen from the Mamluk caste and pay fees in exchange for, for protection from taxation, a practice backed by elites who took their cut. Rulers responded by increasingly resorting to outright confiscation of elite wealth. Um, so essentially, the picture he's painting is is just that for all of these periods of history and all of these empires, the 
the elite classes have essentially just been mafias. Exactly. And uh, that's the, they're really no different. And then, except that they're mafias that that paint themselves as the the kind of fathers of their country, like you mentioned Cicero and and these um, these benevolent uh, leaders looking out looking looking after and protecting the um, their subjects. When essentially they they may offer protection, but it's a protection racket. It's uh, it's the protection that the 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 corner mafioso is offering you. You know, at the point of a gun. There's the <laughs> there when you strip back the the propaganda and the 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 image making. That's essentially what you have is is just a, a mafia state and various mafia states. Unfortunately. Well, you know, you said that, and I was thinking of. Uh civil forfeiture and this new racket that mm-hmm. the uh, the police in the U.S. are, are um, engaged in at the moment where, you know, they, they get you on the, uh, on some, on some kind of technical um, uh, violation that, um, you know, maybe they found a small amount of, of marijuana in, in a state that where it's still illegal or they, or they find it in your car or, or you've done some kind of minor infraction, and well, even not. I've, or, I've or, heard cases where they just pull you over where they think you might have committed something, but they might not even think that. But then they just well go they, on. Well, they, exactly. <laughs> I, they they confiscate. They take your shit. Mm-hmm. They take your stuff. They might take your car. Uh, they might uh, go to your home. And this has become an institutionalized practice in the in the past five to ten years. This is a a kind of major development uh, that um, that is indicative of a of a police state uh, that has and what is a police state? I mean, it's it's where local law enforcement has become uh, militarized and incentivized to uh, confiscate property um, because it's become you know it's it's in this technically legal. Uh, if not morally uh, illegal uh, framework, um, and why has this happened? Everything that that's you know that the U.S. has become in the last fifteen or twenty years after nine eleven has been a a movement towards uh, this uh, hyper uh, militarized um, uh, global mafia. Uh, you know, there's there's. You know, the CIA and the State Department have always instituted color revolutions and coups around the world, but they've gone into this kind of hyper, uh, hyper aggressive mode, uh, which is reflected domestically. So uh, we're seeing this across the board. Um, and and the, you know, the, the police are the, for lack of a better uh, description, uh, you know, in some cases or in many cases, Mafia, mafiaized, um, and uh, it's uh, it's when you read stories of, of individuals and and how they've how little recourse they've had uh, given the laws to uh, get their stuff back um, be, because of all the legal wrangling and uh, and attorney fees that are involved, and perhaps a, a bureaucracy that's sympathetic to and getting a cut of all of this uh, confiscation. It's, it's become, you know, state-sponsored um, extortion. And like you were saying before, Harrison, you know, the, the, 
um, there, there were um, Romans uh, elitists who had these governorships who, who were tried for extorting the people who were under them. But so often it wasn't because it was the, the, the right legal thing to do to, to call them on it and have some justice served. It was all political retribution. It was all elitist infighting. So given the way, um, given the trajectory that the U.S. now appears to be on, um, the, I think most people uh, are, are becoming more and more subject to um, this police state, this, this kind of uh, mafiosa state of being that, that may only, um, that they'll have little recourse to, except to finally uh, reach, reach that horrific tipping point that isn't going to solve anything, but is probably going to result in a, in a lot of bloodshed. You know, it's all very uplifting, <laughs> but I was thinking about it and, you know, to make it even less uplifting, um, you know, this is, as we've discussed, this is a problem that spans races, cultures, millennia, and it shows no signs of abating. And it's just seems to be part and parcel of the human condition, really, that, you know, there's petty tyranny and that elite, there are powers in elite circles that, um, that just lure human minds in or they just mold human minds to, um, to fetishize power and, and glory and worship of the self and narcissism and psychopathy and sociopathy and all of like the darkest instincts in human nature. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, this is something that has been observed in time immemorial for ever since it's been going on. You know, there have been people who stand back and, and watch and say, you're not any better than me. You know, you're, you're not God. You're not some, you know, super powerful prophet. And at the end of the day, you will be reduced to the level that I'm at. And it's happened time and time again. One of the early popes, he was talking about how he he offered up just small little donations to um, elite Roman families who had previously owned, you know, large portions of the world and who overnight were reduced to being paupers and beggars, begging the pope, um, begging the earliest church for uh, for money because they've, they've lost everything, and now they're reduced to nothing. And that's where the wisdom of the Stoics and of the early philosophers and early Christianity and Confucius and all of these things really, um, really shines through, I think, and that this is a problem that mankind has been grappling with since we first observed it. Since You know, we're not, you know, these... The Occupy Wall Street wasn't the first people to observe that there was a 1% and that, you know, they seem to be able to do whatever they want. And the, um, the Trump supporters weren't the first ones to notice that there's crooked uh, Clintonites in every, you know, organization who are right. above the law and who can do whatever they, whatever they want. And there's an elite circle out to, you know, take out their, um, their popular, popularly elected official. This is something that's been going on for, as we've said since we have records and it's a struggle and in many ways it's probably the you know one of the biggest catalysts for that religious 
spiritual um, awakening in in just many areas across the world. Because how do you rectify? You know, how do you how do you live? You know, in especially in the times that we're talking about. You know, under slaves being extorted. You know, ten barely barely a tenth of the population can even live above surplus, or you know, um, can live. You know, without you know, above subsistence levels. You know, there's there's more to life than you know than these crazy individuals seem to think. And in the in the long term, I would say that we have learned quite a bit, and that we are you know the other side, not just the crazy elites, um, power hungry side. The other side, we're you know um, we are still uh, we're better off. We're better off than they are, immeasurably better off. With all the riches and whatnot that they have, the, the morals and the lessons that are on the, um, you know, this, us, the, the, you know, the poor or whatever, the, the ones who aren't in power, um, there's, there's just, there's still hope there. It's like it reminds me of the uh, True Detective, the final scene in the, la- or in the first episode of True Detective where... Um, was his name Rust is outside and they're looking up at the sky and he says uh, something to the effect that you know it's um, you know at one time it was just pure darkness but now you can see the light he's like I think I think that means we're winning you know in in some ways that's um, as as corny as of a lesson to take away from that it just means that there's uh, there's another side to things it's not just about power it's not just about inequality in that sense. It's about, you know, it's not just about the great game, but it's about, you know, the great arts of the soul, really. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I want to come back to is that modern vision of what the state is and should be, and how I think there is some validity to that, <clears throat> just in the sense that, first of all, because there are, some, there are a lot of people that believe it, and even some, um, like, public servants and civil servants that believe it. There are there are politicians who actually do have ideals, whether or not they they manage to um, implement them or not is another question. But there there is a both both a tradition and a reality behind that sentiment that there is a place for um, kind of selfless public service. Taking that into account, I think that it's important not to not to not to fall into both like a resentment and a total cynicism about this. On the other hand, there, there, there is a place for, for cynicism. There are certain harsh realities that I think should be accepted. But I think that those two can kind of go together in some way, that you can hold on to a certain ideal, but ground it in realism. And what I mean by that is to, um, to realize in your utopian thinking that there are certain aspects of probably of your utopian thinking that are totally unrealistic that will never come about but there are certain principles in there that are probably worth hanging on to and worth trying to exemplify primarily in your own life and trying to to spread them through your own life and through your influence to those around you mm-hmm. because when you um, so in in a lot of the utopian political ideologies and philosophies, there's this idea of removing inequality. Well, you have, we have to just eliminate that notion from our minds. We're never going to eliminate equality. We have to plan for equality. I think this is what um, I don't think very many people have ever actually done is to account for inequality. Say, okay, well, these are the things we're never going to, to eliminate. 
Now, how do we how do we operate within this system? Um, what what policies can we push or move towards that will mitigate some aspects of that system, but which won't try to tear it all down because it's impossible to tear it all down. Basically, we need to be realistic and practical at the same time that we're idealistic. We have to make a marriage between those two aspects of our aspirations. And I guess, um, yeah, just that we, that we, we have to take into account that there are things that will never change and then find a way to maneuver within the within those things that can't change in order to make things right. And I, I like that you brought up stoicism because that brings it down to the very individual level. I think there I think there is a place for kind of um, political evolution and and introduction of potential potentially effective policies that would mitigate some aspects of the the problems in um, that th that we see dealing with corruption and those kinds of things knowing that we're never going to eliminate them completely. But what we can do in our own lives is learn to navigate that situation for ourselves so that we're, we're, not, that, uh, we're not controlled by the circumstances around us. And that's kind of one of the central things about Stoicism, and not just Stoicism, but various, various philosophies and uh, kind of uh, worldviews that are compatible with Stoicism. See, you find the same thing in early Christianity in the, the letters of Paul, at one point, Paul says that he has been initiated into great wealth and, and great poorness, essentially. He's been rich and poor, and he knows, he knows the secrets of each. That, th that it is possible to live uh, a good life with very little money, and it's possible to live a, a totally wretched life with a lot of money, and, you know, and, vice, the, and, versa, and yeah. vice versa. That, the, that if we, by focusing so much on, on wealth and um, our own just our own money, but we're missing something about what it actually, we're missing something about the potentials that are actually in front of us, regardless of our place in that, uh, in that hierarchy. So um, I guess it just comes down to learning to, learning to navigate your life, realizing what conditions you're in and realizing that you that despite all of those despite whatever forces are out there in the world keeping you down there's still a still an area of movement still a degree of freedom that you have within those strictures and it's the, what comes to mind for me are the the stories of kind of the the great the, the great martyrs and heroes even of the even of the last 100 years those people who um, even in imprisonment, um, whether it's under a totalitarian government or for some other reason, who retain their freedom, their freedom of the, like their internal freedom, even within those conditions. And again, that goes back to Stoicism and, and early Christianity. It's, it's the, the inner fortitude and character that can be expressed regardless of the external conditions over which you have no control. And when you are able to maintain that freedom despite the um this despite the 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 factors oppressing you from the outside then you're living a life that's more worth living than anyone else than than the people oppressing you the than the prison guards and the 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 arbitrary and um like the arbitrary rulers that that are just power hungry um you know and have a, a sickness of the soul, right? Really, well, I and uh, 
Well, I just wanted to add that uh, by the same token, um, I don't think I don't think that what you're saying is uh, having as one of your focuses uh, living in comfort, monetary and, and financial and physical comfort is is a, a bad thing. Uh, not at all. Um, in fact, you know, as as things continue to destabilize uh, all around us in, in various ways, um, making sure uh, that you are healthy and and physically and strong and uh, and secure in your environment and having some modicum of, of financial independence is probably a, um, a as wise a, a thing as you can do as not becoming too identified with the accrual of, of wealth and uh, the trappings of external power. Um, because, uh, you know, that's a part of it too, just basic day-to-day uh, living, or even more than basic, uh, because there are always expenses and needs that, that arise that are unanticipated. Um, so just thought I'd put that out there as well. Well, I just, uh, did you guys have anything else that you wanted to say? Well, I wanted to finish by reading a, an interesting little quote from uh, Walter's book. Guan Fu, this is, he's talking about China, I believe it was in the, the Han uh, dynasty, during the Han dynasty. Uh, Guan Fu, a highly placed government official, had accumulated a large fortune and owned so much land in his native region that widespread loathing of his preeminence inspired a local children's song. While the Ying River is clear, the Guan family will be secure. When the Ying River is muddy, the Guan family will be exterminated. (laughs) This cute little ditty (laughs) captured the precarious fortunes of the politically wealthy. More often than not, families that had risen high fell far. Risks extended to the very top of the status pyramid, to the families of the Han emperor's consorts. So in that, you know, with those little kids really captured was the uncontrollable natural force that is this hierarchy that we are a part of you know you have no idea it's like the stoics said you have to you know they practice some sort of a detachment from you know these influences in life that are outside of your power and outside of your control and that in fact you know there's higher values out there be to be beyond being poor or being rich these are just very superficial things that will happen, that will, they can change, just like they point out the Ying River changes. The Ying River changes, so will your, for, your fortune in life, so will your, the status in life. But that, um, you know, as the Stoics also point out, is that that is something that's been developed and developed over the years, that, that there's, um, there's much, higher, much higher values there. And, and in, in my opinion, you know, reading... Reading books like this, gaining this kind of insight, um, you know, from the works of people who have labored, you know, sometimes their whole lives to f- figure out the theoretical and evidential problems behind understanding the history, understanding, um, you know, problems like inequality and violence in society, that, you know, this is a much higher value and they've um, given us, and Walter himself has given us a, a great insight by publishing this book. So that said... We are going to tune out this week. We hope that you hit smash like, grab, (laughs) and uh, subscribe. And we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. See you later.